Welcome to The Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome again to the Book Pod, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Corrie Perkin, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this beautiful place in which we record today's episode and to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and future. I would also like to pay my respects to our guest, Larissa Berendt, and thank her for her beautiful new novel, After Story, one of the highlights of my. 2021 reading. Larissa, welcome to the book pod and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be here. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Larissa, you now work in Sydney. You are the Distinguished Professor, Chair of Indigenous Research and Director of Research and Academic Programs at the University of Technology in Sydney. But I wondered where did you grow up? Where is home for you? I gather you came to Sydney when you were a student and, but you had grown up in the Cooma region in New South Wales. Well, I was yes. Well, I was born in Cooma, as you, as you rightly say. Um, and then actually, my family spent a bit of time on Norfolk Island. So it's probably partly why I became such a big reader at such a young age because we didn't have television that I remember. We certainly didn't have it on Norfolk Island until we got to Sydney. So I did get to Sydney when I was about seven or eight. And I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, but my father was very connected with the Redfern community. So I spent a lot of time there and would stay with um, friends of the family there. I live right in the city now, and, and it does feel like that inner city region is home. I grew up not just with the politics of Redfern, which obviously really shaped my worldview, but um, I grew up with the stories around the harbour. So even stories now like Barangaroo and Patagarang that I think are better known to non-Indigenous Australians who live in that area, they were stories of Aboriginal women that I knew growing up. So I feel a strong affinity to that place, even though our traditional lands are out at Walgut and Bulwarana out on Gamilaroi-Ualarai country. Part of your of your latest book, After Story, it unfolds in country New South Wales, the community of Frog Hollow. Is that based on one place that you know or a compilation of places? It is a compilation of places, uh, a couple of towns, and it, because it's not unusual to have the structure of the town that we see uh, in in that place. And Frog Hollow is, the, is what the people who live on the outskirts of town call that part of town, the Frog Hollow. And there's a couple of places that do have an actual place called Frog Hollow because where the Aboriginal people lived was the places that that flooded first. So, for example, Narromine has a Frog Hollow. There are, uh, it's a similarity in a lot of places, as is that segregation where, where the Aboriginal houses are makes it quite segregated. And while some Aboriginal people might have moved into other parts of the town, there are strong Aboriginal communities that, that once sat a bit removed from the town, but as the town's grown, they're on the, still on the outskirts or in a particular part. It felt very much like many of the coastal, north coastal, south coastal and sort of northwest towns that I know quite well. I spent um, time growing up down at Wollaga Lake we were sent to, out to Walgut, which is on our traditional country, 
So it was sort of an amalgam of that. I think it speaks very much to our experience of Aboriginal people in those rural areas or even in the way that Redfern was its own little enclave, that there are places where um, there's almost a, a segregation that continues as part of what was once a very distinctive historical segregation. Does the segregation in 2022 feel normal to you? It feels very abnormal to me. It doesn't feel like we have evolved properly, even though we talk about reconciliation and we use all those sorts of words. I just still have this sense that there are communities where the segregation is still really obvious. Look, I think that's true to this extent. I think it is still the case you can go to a lot of those towns. People who live in those towns would know there are specific places that are still referred to as the mission or the old mission, and they are places that have predominantly Aboriginal people living there. I think what has changed is that over time, our land councils have bought much of that land so it's Aboriginal control. So once upon a time, you will push there. So I think it's possible to look at that now with more of a strengths-based approach. It's where, you know, we've often got our own housing stock for our own community, our own older people. So in a sense, for me, there's a, there's a positivity around that. It's a self-determining space in many ways. And there's a strong history. People's uh, grandparents, great-grandparents have been there, so there's long connections to those, those parts of town. Um, and that's seen you know, in a, a positive way because it's family and it's community. Having said that, I think the, the sort of segregation that you see in those places, and I think this is true anywhere, it's as much in the urban places as it is in these regional places, that you can see that there are there is a, a form of racism that still occurs that's, that's deep-rooted and is historic. And in a way, that's one of the things I really wanted to look at in the book. I, in my work, it's been my experience that there are hangovers, even though now, you know, sporting teams are, are mixed and uh, there's no segregation on the playground in the same way, things like what the expectations are of Aboriginal students, the way Aboriginal people are treated in different ways, the stereotyping, um, you know, you can still feel that those things are quite entrenched and certainly it's a, a kind of experience that people have with how they live. But I guess what I was really trying to show in the book is something I see in my legal work, that things like crimes being investigated or the removal of children are still two spaces where we see a lot of unconscious bias and sometimes outright racism in terms of how decisions are made. And they, you know, they have huge impacts on Aboriginal people and families that go on for generations. One thing I am I have always been really envious of about Indigenous culture is your sense of family. And in a not dissimilar way, I, I had a discussion with a Jewish friend not long ago who had, they, he has a very, very tight-knit family. Religion is at the centre of it, but family is its own kind of religion. And I don't know, I don't know whether this is right or not, but I do sense just the structure of aunties and the role of women in Indigenous families. And there's a connection there that so many people from like my background, Anglo-Saxon background, we just just gets lost in the busyness of life and Indigenous communities do hold on to it and I think that's one of the 
many interesting aspects of After Story, your novel, because it is such a strong story about family, the positive and the negative, and it really shines through and the role of the women really shines through. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with all of us. It does make us think about about how we need to get better, actually, at looking after family. I love that observation because, for me, one of the things I'm really interested in, of course, is sharing um, what I see as such a positive culture. And, I, you know, I grew up still at a time when people were taught to be ashamed of being Aboriginal. I was very lucky that I was in an environment where I never felt ashamed of it. And that, that was, it was a rare thing for my time. It was, uh, you know, an incredibly rare thing for my parents' generation. But, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I sort of feel like there are things in, in the crises that are facing us uh, today where Indigenous knowledges can help with a way forward. And I think people are starting to really understand that in relation to how we lived with the environment and that there is a bit of an understanding now that if we were the world's oldest living culture at 65,000 plus years, we knew something about sustainability and that was a lot to do with how we lived with um, our environment. But I think what kind of gets lost, which goes to the point that you were making, is that we also had to know how to live with each other for 65,000 years. These weren't, we had nations across the, you don't see the kind of empires and empires falling that you would see in other parts of the world. And I think a big part of that is the way we structured our society. And there's two things that you mentioned that go to the heart of that. First, of course, is that women are always equal. And I don't think you can have a sustainable community unless you respect the role of women. And when, when you know, I think if you, marvel that we have a culture that survived 65,000 years. For me, the marvel is it survived the last 200. And the role of women both in keeping us together through that, that period, that apocalyptic period, and the role they have in rebuilding those communities now is central to why we are still the world's oldest living culture. So characters like Arnie Elaine, for me, were absolutely pivotal in, in that. And the other thing, that you know about family is our kinship systems were so strong and so so intense you had relationships with everyone i think one of the things if you look at both the issues around the fracturing of our societies you know in a a, a trumpian world where there's such division and we see you know re-emerging conflict it's because we don't think that, that that people we think people are against us rather than with us and the kinship system not only ensures you understand that you have a connection with every person you meet, you have responsibilities and obligations to each other. It completely changes the way you see somebody. And it's why even today when you'll see when Aboriginal people meet each other for the first time, they won't say, you know, what do you do or, you know, why are you here? They'll say, where are you from? And that question about where you are from is still the way that we'll connect and probably heard those conversations where people start to work out what towns they're from, what families they're connected to. And sure enough, you're always finding connections. I just spent last weekend in rural Victoria and sure enough, along the way, found two people that I was connected with through those extended family networks. I think that's probably why I was very interested to know where is home for you. Um, Apart from the fact that it is a theme in this book, along with family, but I I think having a strong sense of where we've come from and retaining a connection 
is really important. I'm often perplexed by people who say, oh, I grew up here, I grew up there, oh, I haven't been back for 30 years. And I often think, but why? That's where all your childhood memories are, good and bad. You have to kind of, to, to work out who you are, you have to know where you've come from. I think that's absolutely right. And, and we feel that especially strongly and it's been a very big theme through our communities where you've had such a period of displacement. I think it's a wonderful thing now that we, first of all, the acknowledgement of country as you did such a lovely thing at the beginning as a kind of ceremony, acknowledges everywhere is Aboriginal land. And for younger generations, that might just seem like, you know, what, what they're used to. But, you know, when I was growing up, people would say there were no Aboriginal people in Sydney. There are no Aboriginal people in the Sutherland Shire. We have big communities there. We were invisible and now, now we're not. And the other big change that I think has been really positive about that is because of the impact of the removal policy, people were able to say they were Aboriginal, they knew they were Aboriginal, were actually now much more likely to know where they're from. So rather than saying I'm an Aboriginal person, they used to say I'm Iwalaroi and Gamilaroi. And that process of going back home and reconnecting and rekindling um, our identity as nations has been really important. And it really is not unrelated to some of those really big themes in the book because it's actually through going back and it's not just the oral histories but the stories that then get brought up again that people who, especially our older people who didn't speak those stories even though they might have heard them as children but were taught not to, to talk about their culture, were taught to be ashamed of it, now finding that they can remember that and they've been central to regenerating these processes. Even the possum cloak making process is a really interesting example of that. People would have said it had died out but people had memories of it. And once it started to be done as a practice, those memories came back. And you'll go to places where people are doing that and might not have done it before and would say, oh, you know, I've never done it. But then you'll hear the old people saying, oh, no, you don't do it like you do it like this. Like there's a sense memory there. But all of that, which is the same as with our languages coming back, our stories coming back, we're seeing a kind of knitting together of some of those communities. And, you know, in a way that's that's partly what the role of story is trying, I'm just trying to do in after stories that actually you have a disconnection between a mother and daughter because of a, 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 a tragedy and actually struck a intergenerational trauma in the family. And it's actually through those cultural stories that they're able to reconnect. I just I see that as a, as a way in which we're seeing communities, families and people reconnecting. Well, let's talk about After Story. I'm holding it up to the camera even though our podcast listeners cannot see how much I love this book because it's been thumbed through so they can't see it. But um, first of all, I mean, I love the design of the cover. But uh, it appeared in bookshops, Larissa, midway through last year and it has been an absolute thrill to watch its very positive word of mouth get louder. And then, of course, a few weeks ago, it was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award Best Fiction Prize, which we were thrilled to see. What does it mean to be shortlisted for a prestigious literary award? What does it mean to a writer? Well, I'm sure for everyone it's an incredible validation. I think for us as First Nations writers it has a particular meaning. You know, I think we've got a wonderful renaissance of, of First Nations writers uh, at the moment. 
people like Alexis Wright, Tony Birch, Anita Heiss, Melissa Lukashenko have just led the way for, you know, this, this new generation of writers that are coming through. And, you know, this is a fairly recent thing. I think for those of us like me that grew up not having books by Indigenous authors to read, there's a sense of, of our stories moving from the periphery into the, into the mainstream readership, which is incredibly positive um, for our storytelling and our stories. Uh, so I think, I think that's something that's never lost on me because I think there's been some really important work done around Indigenous writing prizes that have really um, boosted the confidence and profile of Indigenous writers, and particularly the David Unipan Award, which won for my first manuscript, which was obviously the, the start of my heart. I know it's been that for a lot of other Indigenous writers. So these prizes can be really important in terms of building that confidence. To now start to see our you know, great writers win those major prizes, I think, is, is a really important moment, not just what it says for us as, as um, writers, but what it says about where the broader Australian community is in terms of engagement. Um, for me personally, I'm sure it's like everyone, you never sit down to write a book thinking about prizes. You just, I'm sure if you did that, your book would not be very good. Um, I wrote stories and characters that were really close to my heart, and especially are the Elaine and Della, and, and the woman, the, the very dear friend of mine that I based Della on, passed away very recently, just as the book had come out, um, in unexpected in a way that she was older and been quite grief-stricken about it. So to see how people love Della as a character is really touching to me, and in a way that's been the most wonderful thing about the response to the book, is that people are loving characters based on women who I just dearly love too. Well, we love them too. And Potties, if you haven't yet read a copy, I urge you to pick one up. This is a beautiful novel about family, about guilt, about regret, about mother and daughter bonds and the power of storytelling to heal and to actually enhance our lives. And there's no doubt about it, it's fast becoming a favourite among book clubs, Larissa, because you've presented everybody with so many themes to discuss. The novel opens with Jasmine a young Indigenous woman who lives in Sydney. She's a hard-working lawyer. She's always been very studious. She loves her books. And she's contemplating the idea of accepting a trip to England for two to visit famous literary landmarks. I can only imagine, like my head boggles about what that tour must be like. Uh, there's one part of me would, that would absolutely love to go and then there's another part of like I'd rather stick pins in my ears than <laughs> be in a bus with different, but like there's such a cast of characters in that bus. It's so much fun. Jasmine invites her mother Della to join her and Della's never been overseas. She hasn't ventured further than her patch really, but she accepts the invitation and then the journey of mother and daughter begin. In the first few pages, we learn that this is a family deeply scarred by the disappearance years earlier of Jasmine's older sister, Brittany, a little girl who was abducted from the family home and never seen again. And as you said earlier, Jasmine and Della are carrying that trauma from that terrible event. And yet, as we progress through the pages, suddenly we're in Shakespeare's Stratford-upon-Avon, suddenly we're in a pub having a beer with Della, an English pub, suddenly we're on the Yorkshire Moors, the home of the Bronte sisters, and then, so what's the connection? And it just seems to be that landscape provides Della an opportunity to tell her story, 
and Jasmine recognises the importance of reclaiming her culture, her story. But why don't we start, if you would would do us the honour of reading a little bit from After Story, perhaps from the very beginning, because it isn't giving anything away to the reader to say that Brittany disappears, but it is a pretty harrowing start to a beautiful book. I'd love to do a little reading, so I'll start halfway through that um, segment, that uh, introduction. As I rested my head, tired and heavy from the night before, I scanned the street. You send Brittany, I yelled out to Leanne so she could know I was the watching. She shook her head and kept concentrating on working the pink petals with her little feet. I wasn't concerned at first. Brittany's father, Jimmy, was living two doors down and she could just as easily have been there or in any of the houses along the street. So I can't tell you why, but as I sat in the slow warming autumn morning, nothing... So I can't tell you why, but as I sat in the slow, warming autumn morning, I started to feel uneasy. There was a fishing line in my stomach looking for something to hook. I walked over to Jimmy's house and found him nursing his own savage hangover. Brittany wasn't there, so I went to Aunt Elaine's house, the last in our street. She rang my sister Kiki, who lived two blocks over, close to a row of small family shops on the main road. By the time Kiki arrived, I was going from house to house, knocking on doors. That deep, crawling feeling kept growing, spreading out like dark honey spilled over a tablecloth. Together, Kiki and I tried every friend of Brittany's we could think of. No one had seen her. No one knew where she was. We searched down at the creek and in the surrounding bush, our voices echoing in the silence. And all the while, that darkness inside me kept growing. By late afternoon, Kiki took me to the police station and we reported Brittany missing. I was hoping, I guess the howling blood in my veins. She walked through the door, oblivious to all the panic she caused. But that's not what happened and life was never the same again. Oh. Hopefully that doesn't give anything away. <laughs> you a sense of the mystery. Well, it gives you a sense of the mystery. And as I said to you before we began today, you know, the concept of the missing child it's one of those calamitous tragedies that reappears so constantly in crime fiction, yet After Story is not a crime novel, but this terrible moment in the family's history really defines its future in a way. And then there is another missing child when, we, uh, when the action moves to England with Della and on, her, on her trip and Jasmine. Why the missing child, so terrifying, so confronting, to readers and author alike, I guess. I, I can't imagine they're easy passages for you to write. But what was it about the missing child that you felt was essential to this story? There are probably a few things. As you say, it's actually quite a common theme. But if you think of that idea of it's, it's quite a, a, a trope in non-Indigenous Australian writing of the white child that goes missing in, in the landscape, and it speaks in that sense to the vulnerability that non-Indigenous Australians feel on country. And so, you know, there's a part that's reclaiming that story for with its Aboriginal context and its colonial context. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. For me, in, in the work that I've, I've done, I've with both victims of crime, uh, including parents who've had children murdered and not had justice for it, but also 
families who have had a death in custody, often of, of younger family members, um, and have also never been able to get closure for that, uh, see that intergenerational trauma as there's been no closure uh, over decades for a death in custody or a, um, a crime that's been committed. And, and I guess the other side of that, in terms of the vulnerability of children, I, I do a lot of work in the child protection space and you see that, that also gives you insights into the importance of the relationship between children and families and what it means for families to have a child removed, wrongfully removed and taken from them. It's a different, it's a different thing to a murder, but it is, it is a traumatic thing for both the family and the child to go through a system. And I do many cases where there's been wrongful removals and probably the quickest you can get a child back in those circumstances is about eight to nine months. So there's serious trauma, particularly to a child through that time. So they were some of the themes that were in my mind through through that. And I guess the other thing that was a part of it was the there is so much focus on the danger that children have to strangers. And it's probably the last taboo in a way, which we are starting to talk about. We've had a whole world commission into institutionalised uh, sexual abuse, which is really focused on the vulnerability of children. But of course that builds on the enormous work done about the experiences of our stolen generations through the Bringing Them Home Report. But, um, you know, that, that idea which I was able to see either from that work that I've been describing all my work with the Serious Offenders Review Council, which meant I was, the name implies, dealing with the serious offenders, uh, was was really um, reinforcing the idea of the dangers that are much closer to home. Your book and Della's sense of guilt and the shadow that it had over the family forevermore, you absolutely nailed our fears and you provided such an insight, I think, to me as a reader of your book, or another dimension. I think if we're parents, we can kind of get an idea of, of what the emotions would be. But I felt that your book gave me so much more to, to understanding what was happening there. It was a really interesting parallel when, when sadly, when art becomes life. Mm. Actually, it's not unusual that, that children go missing. In fact, one of the, the, the reasons for being really interested in writing about this material was some of the comments I heard made to some of the fa Aboriginal families um, who were victims of crime uh, that I heard from non-Indigenous lawmakers, quite senior lawmakers, saying to them, you know, you should really get over it and move on in terms of their fight for justice not going anywhere. And it just struck me about what a horrific thing it was to say to a parent, how sensitive, and that that person would never have said that, rightly would never have said that to Danny Walker's parents. And so there is a sense that somehow there is a, a difference in how Aboriginal children are treated when they go missing and that, that, that the similarities are there, which is why Della can be so triggered by seeing a little English girl, uh, this disappearance, that the, the shared humanity she has as a mother is, is triggered. And it's such an obvious way to hurt a family. It's such an easy way, dare I say, in close communities to just to take someone's child and to punish them or, or to be advantageous if you're a predator. The apathy, the lethargy of the, the police involved in and the recollections 
in your story of what happens in the days and weeks that follows Brittany's disappearance are, are just awful. It, it is horrific and it is sadly too often the case. Obviously in this instance I wrote a story where Brittany is a young child but I have obviously seen cases where young children have disappeared and, and police have not treated it seriously. Um, it becomes even more problematic when it's young teenagers and young teenage girls particularly who are very vulnerable to being victims of crime, um, treated very differently, often assumed to be runaways, not investigated as thoroughly. And I think we're starting now, there's a parliamentary inquiry into missing Aboriginal children that's being pushed by the Greens and the Labor Party um, to highlight the fact that it's very easy for law enforcement to be dismissive of, of teenagers going missing, but that is a very vulnerable group. So let's look at the other story that's running kind of parallel with this backstory of, of Brittany's disappearance, which is the literary tour that I would love to slash not love to go on one day. But tell me how, tell me about the setup for that. Where did this idea come from and and to take it to a, to a broader location? With it celebrates um, a really rich literary tradition of its own, one that runs parallel, of course, with, with Indigenous storytelling. Well, I grew up loving that canon. I didn't have First Nations writers, but I, re- I grew up in a house that, where books were really valued. Both my mother and father were avid and lifelong learners, readers, uh, and I loved that canon. I loved Jane Austen. I, I loved the Bronte sisters. I loved Charles Dickens. My father also gave me a lot of George Orwell to read. So I actually grew up on that and I I really loved it. And I think it's interesting. Yes, it's colonial literature, but I learned about feminism through Jane Austen. I learned about uh, the the individual aspirations and how they're crushed by the systems around you through the Brontes. I learned about class and the role of the legal system in Dickens. So these, you know, for me, these were books that really taught me about the world. Virginia Woolf, you know, I, I think she's a phenomenal writer and actually going back and rereading all of these favourite books in the process of putting the, the book together, um, I was rem- you know, I was reminded of what a brilliant writer she was and, and it was sobering how relevant A Room of One's Own was in terms of some of the debates we're having today. So, you know, insightful writers. So I did really want to celebrate that. I've done similar tours like that, though not the literary tour with my mother when I was younger. So I always thought what a great place to keep your characters, a a narrative device so they can't get away from each other and you get on the bus, off the bus, you're really tired. The characters were all invented except for the Boston sisters, which we really did meet on one of those trips. (laughs) Um, And and maybe this might um, make you more interested in in doing the tour. Uh, I did the tour with my now husband, so we didn't go on a bus with characters, but we just went ourselves and drove around to the different places and worked out how we could fit them in and and where we'd go and and how to to sort of see Oxford through the eyes of, it was Carol, for example. So it was actually great fun doing that part of the research. I'd had the ideas for the storyline and for some reason just you have instincts about what's going to go together even though you're not quite sure how to work it through. I knew the literary tour would give me both the place to have both of my characters, my key characters of Della and Jasmine, 
and to really show their differences of, of the university-educated Jasmine and Della who, who'd rarely left her hometown and hadn't finished high school. But also I think all of us know, whether it's a little tour or we've lived overseas for several years, being away, whatever you learn about the place that you are, you always learn something about yourself. And certainly that's been my experience. Every time, if it's a short trip or I've lived there for a long time, I learn so much about myself. And I thought that was something too that I, I really wanted to learn. And, and sometimes it is that thing. For somebody like Della, until she gets away from the community that defines her in a particular way, she's not able to define herself any differently. And it's really her character arc that, you know, is the one... I really love. I feel like it's really Della's story in many ways. Well, one of the characters who who actually is dead in this book is Auntie, Auntie Elaine, and she's so powerful. And I was reading the wonderful Deborah Adelaide's review of After Story in the Australian Book Review. It came out last year sometime. And she says, Auntie Elaine's courage, wisdom, humour and resilience invoked regularly by both narrators are familiar qualities among Aboriginal elders. But while she features strongly throughout this novel, her presence remains shadowy, her own story elusive. And Deborah goes on to say that she'd actually love you to write a book or she suggests that she'd love you to write a book about Auntie Elaine. Here, here, I agree. But um, <laughs> tell me about the Auntie Elaine character and why was it important to have her not alive, not but her voice constantly in reflections and memories of her? I think for me... You know, she represents those women who bring our community back together. For a couple of reasons why I wanted to play with the idea that she passed on, the idea that we have in our culture that when people leave us, they are still with us, which is very a very reassuring thing. But it's actually through her relationships individually with, with Della and Jasmine that Della and Jasmine can find a way back to each other. So... I love the idea that she could still provide that role while she wasn't there because that really speaks to how how in, ingrained those pres- that, that presence is. It, in a way, Jasmine's closest relationship in Frog Hollow is with Annie Elaine and, and it's one of Della's closest as well and yet they, they're not close to each other. She's such a glue in that way. But the other reason for it in terms of story structure is it's, it's only with Annie Elaine's passing that Della can start to realise that she is at the beginning of her own eldership. When she starts to tell this, the first time she tells a cultural story that she remembers from Annie Elaine, when she's asked by one of the um, other Australians on the, the tour who's curious about her culture, she starts to realise how much she remembers and what a, how much of Annie Elaine's knowledge is now in her. And it's at that point that she starts to tell the stories and she finds her own voice. And we start to see the beginning, everyone on the trip is is dismissive of her because she's the least educated. And by the end, she's the one they all admire as as kind of the, the most wise. She's the one everyone confides in about their frustrations. And, you know, Lionel, I think, sees it early on, but there is a there's a magic to her that she doesn't see herself until she starts to and sees herself in that storytelling. And it's why I also made the choice to swap the, the order of the women once Della gets her, starts to get her voice and her confidence. And I think if Annie Elaine was still there, she wouldn't feel the same confidence or the same need 
to tell the stories to keep it alive and alive because Auntie Elaine was the traditional custodian of that and now she is. And for me, it was a part of that, that transmission for her to do that. So there were a range of reasons why, sadly, that was the case. And, and I guess that was the other thing too, that each time we lose an Auntie Elaine from a community, we lose all that knowledge. It's almost like a, a warning to, to people to say, while, while our elders are there, we have to listen, we have to hear their stories, we have to provide space to be able to, to get the information and knowledge that they have to give us, or it's too late and it's gone. We have to go through the process of trying to re- reawaken things much in a much harder way. So, um, you know, there was a bit of a warning in it as well. But thank goodness for artists and creatives such as yourself. At the top of the program, I outlined your extraordinary achievements professionally through the law, all your many not-for-profit roles on boards, and we've talked about all of that, but also your role as a filmmaker, a writer and a director. Storytelling is in your gene pool (laughs) and you have a gift for it. It is so important, isn't it? I mean, can you just sort of encapsulate how important storytelling is to give us all, whatever colour, whatever our background, a greater understanding of who we are and also our communities around us. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we come from an oral storytelling tradition and I guess one of the things I wanted to highlight with the cultural stories that I've used in, in the book is that our storytelling wasn't just wasn't to entertain, it was to teach. All of our cultural stories, when they're told in their entirety, have a, a range of knowledges in them. It could be obviously the big important themes of, of your responsibility to look after children. There, was, there are a lot of themes about ensuring you share, being punished for being selfish. So that you know there are sort of those kind of things that you might have in what um, in a Western tradition would be like fables, um, those sort of things. But you get into the deeper things. I'll tell you about the seasons. They'll they'll tell you about what it means when a particular flower comes out. It will tell you about how to treat certain ailments and I've tried to use two stories in them to show the depth of, of knowledges that are in those those stories. So they were real they were really important ways in which learning learning was done. I think for me too, you know, I, I became a lawyer to change the world and there's a lot you can do in running cases and doing submissions to inquiries and lobbying for changes. But one thing I've learned from working with my my families who have been victims of crime or or have had deaths in custody or children removed, when we've worked together, I don't think of them as clients, I feel like it's a very collaborative uh, arrangement, that actually as much as our legal argument can be important, their advocacy from telling their story as somebody who has had a child or a grandchild wrongfully removed or as a parent who is looking for justice for a child. So I guess in terms of explaining experience and highlighting issues, I've, I've become more deeply to understand um, the power of story in that way. And particularly, I guess it's been one of the reasons I've shifted into filmmaking and, and documentary because it allows me to move away from the role of being the advocate and interpreter, like you are as a lawyer, to providing space for people to tell their own stories and use the power of that. So a film, for example, like Harvey Apology, which tells those stories of children wrongfully removed, which can be more powerful for people to understand what's wrong with the situation. You see smart, 
strong women in these terrible positions and you leave asking how could this possibly be a thing where if a lawyer takes you through that in a technical way, it loses its power. And I guess finally, what I've also seen is it's important for others to hear that personal experience to deepen their own understanding. But I've seen how important it is as part of the healing process for people to be able to tell that story. One of the worst things that happens to people when they go through legal processes and particularly with child removal, there are rules in place that prevent reporting on those stories, which means that when something really unjust has happened to, to somebody, there is no way to draw attention to it. Reporters are very loath to, to go into that area. So being able to give people a chance to, to tell their story is very healing to them. And I guess particularly in that child protection space, what we've also seen is when it's such a, a a large part of the lived experience of Aboriginal people. It allows, you've obviously got the non-Indigenous audience who needs to know about the issue, but it will say to other Aboriginal people going through the same thing, you're not alone and there are things you can do and there are, here are some examples of people who've been able to get an outcome, been able to, to progress their case. You know, I think for me that, that's also a very important part is that sharing in my own community of people who are dealing with that, those same intergenerational traumas, those same situations, watching families who've been through the loss of a child come together, the families of a death in custody come together, where they, where they finally meet people who understand the trauma they've been through. And it's the power of fiction as well. You mentioned before on the trip with your now husband and discovering the London of Charles Dickens and so on, and certainly Della and Jasmine have a bit of a Charles Dickens moment too, but just when we reflect on the capacity of his fiction to change Victorian laws, particularly regarding children, but also impoverished conditions and living conditions and work conditions and, and so on, books like yours, books like Tara June Winch's The Yield, these are very important stories, and I just want you to, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but we all, we share them, you know, regardless of our backgrounds, we feel these and we share them, and I'm always very proud of the fact that Australia is a, is a nation of storytellers. We have the First Nations who are the best storytellers of all and have been doing it longer than anybody. You know, I, I just, I love the fact that we tell stories so well and I'm so glad that we have books like After Story that resonate with all of us, regardless of our backgrounds. Oh, that, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing across cultures and, of course, it's something that all cultures share in different ways. And I, you know, I think it's been very exciting to see that evolution in my own culture. Um, there was an early adoption, as there were in other cultures, that, that where there was maybe large levels of illiteracy, for example, where using music and song was a great way to tell stories and to connect. And I think it's why country music has been so popular in First Nations communities because it is, it is very much around storytelling and about lived experience. And my dad used to always say that was um, traditional Aboriginal music is now country music because it was the way that a lot of people could communicate. And, of course, they do that through art as well. I love the way that our artists tell stories. And, and dance. All your wonderful gang at Bangara, you know, like it's just so. I, so I'm loving this. I don't know whether you call it a renaissance, but it's just a real blossoming. And I think the publishers and the 
artistic directors and the festival directors and everybody who gets behind it and supports it are worthy of, you know, a gold-plated banana award. And so I wish you all the best with the success of this book. After Story, I'm sure will continue to appear over the next few months on various prize shortlists and long lists and, and winning lists and all sorts of things. So all power to the novel. And before we leave, just to be completely frivolous for a moment and because we live on a great island known as Australia if you were alone on a desert island which book or books or indeed which author would you like to take with you? Well I have a large library I'd love to take all of it because it has all my favourites in it across a range of things Um, and I would be tempted to take the Jane Austens but I think I could also take the works of Anita Heiss just because they're so broad. Uh, Hers or Tony Birch's, you've got people who write, Anita writes across a range of genres and, you know, fiction, non-fiction, Tony as well, short stories, poetry, some beautiful novels. So I'd have to probably pick one of those because at least I'd have a a lovely breadth of uh, Indigenous storytelling with either of them. Great. Well, I'll come with you. And if the boat's and if the boat's big enough, we might just pop in a bit of Jane Austen as well. <laughs> and the Bronte sisters and Charles Dickens and Virginia Woolf and Alexis Wright and, and Melissa Lukashenko. Alexis Wright's Carpenteria would probably be the big. That's probably even bigger than um, Little Dorrit or one of um, the Big Dickens books. I think. Yeah, I think we're in danger of having our boat sink. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, you know, I couldn't think of a lovelier person to go down on the boat with. Larissa, thank you very much. Larissa Barrent has been our guest today on the book pod. Her new novel, uh, After Story, well, not so new. It came out in 2021, but it's being discovered by book clubs and readers all around Australia, indeed globally. If you are listening in another country, try and get a copy of it. And Larissa, congratulations and thanks so much again for joining us on the book pod. Oh, thank you. What a pleasure.